God, we thank you again for another day in which we get to gather together and rehearse the beautiful gospel. God, thank you that even in our singing, we are reminded that the deepest reality of who we are is that we are loved by you. God, that your love defines us, not our sin, not our mistakes, not the shame that we battle. God, we thank you for Jesus who not only has purchased us with his own blood, but has created a new people in and by his blood. And God, I pray as we look at this topic of obedience today, Lord, would you remind us that you are for our joy. So God, help us to ground our obedience in the gospel, not as a way to earn your love, but because we already have your love in Christ. And so God, teach us your word. We need your help today. We pray in Christ's name, amen. Well, could you spot counterfeit money if you had to? Would you know what to look for in determining if a bill is real or fake? It has been said that federal agents do not learn to spot counterfeit money by studying counterfeit money, but they learn this through mastering the real, genuine, authentic bills. They look for things that are objective, different indicators and signs to determine if a bill is actually real. Let me give you a couple of examples. They look for fine line printing. They look for watermarks and raised prints. They look for uh, even the size and weight they can determine if a bill is fake or if it's real. And by focusing on these markers, most of which are difficult to duplicate, they are able to discern a bill that is real from a bill that is fake. Now, identifying counterfeit money is of some value, of course. But knowing the difference between counterfeit faith and real saving faith is of eternal value. And the question I have for us this morning is, do you know the difference? Obviously, we've been in this book, 1 John, for a couple weeks now. We know that part of the purpose of this book is to help us to discern what a real saving faith actually looks like. See, in the same way that there are certain markers to look for in discerning if a bill is genuine, There are also certain markers or signposts in the life of an individual in determining if a person is really a Christian. That John's focus in this letter is to help us identify how you know for sure that you are a Christian. That the aim of this book is confidence. He wants us to know if we are truly in Christ. And so far, we've seen two signs that you can know that you can have assurance. The first week, we looked at this idea of having fellowship with other believers is a sign that you are a Christian. And then last week, we looked at this idea of walking in the light and how that brings assurance that we are truly saved. Well, here's the third one for us this morning that we're going to look at in our passage. Signpost number three is that a gospel-empowered obedience demonstrates a faith that works. Gospel-empowered obedience demonstrates a faith that works. See, what I want us to see this morning is the importance of obedience as it relates for us to have assurance. Is the Christian's assurance rooted and based upon Jesus's finished work on the cross? Absolutely. We looked at that last week. A thousand times, absolutely. And yet, are there other grounds for assurance? Also, yes. This is something that John is helping us to understand, that even though our assurance is fundamentally grounded in what Jesus has done for us on the cross, 
the lifestyle of the believer is also important in validating if our faith is actually real. And so this morning, um, as we walk through this message, I have three aims for us today. And you can almost view these as three different groups of people that I hope that this message uh, speaks to us about. Here's number one. My first aim is that some of us would receive a level of comfort this morning. That for those who have a tender conscience, those of us who are prone to doubt or maybe think the worst about ourselves, I, I hope and I pray that this message brings a level of encouragement and comfort for you to keep following after Jesus. And then secondly, my second aim is that some of us would feel a level of caution today from this message, that maybe because of an overconfidence in your life spiritually, maybe a dullness of heart or a cavalier-type spirit, I'm praying that this message causes you to take a step back and analyze the way in which you are living. And then thirdly, my third aim today is conviction. That I'm mindful that some people here this morning need to feel the full weight of this text, that you should identify different ways in your life in which your belief is not working, that what you're claiming about what you say you believe is different than how you are living. And I'm, I'm praying that the Holy Spirit brings a level of conviction and repentance in your life. So there's something in this text for all of us today. So as we jump in, I've got three sections I want us to walk through in this passage. We're gonna look first at a faith that works. Secondly, we're gonna look at an obedience that loves. And then lastly, we'll look at a disobedience that blinds disobedience that blinds. So here's number one, a faith that works, verses three through six. Now what I mean by this, a faith that works, is that a true saving faith in Jesus will produce good works in your life. It will lead you to living a life of obedience. One of the Protestant reformers in the 16th century, Martin Luther, coined this popular phrase. He said that we are saved by faith alone, but by a faith that is never alone. What he meant by that is that we are uh, justified, we are accepted before God by our faith, but if that faith is really genuine, if it is really true, then it will be accompanied by good works and by obedience. In other words, what we confess needs to be backed up by our conduct, that what we claim to believe needs to be proved genuine by our behavior that we are saved by a faith that works. Let me show you what I mean by that in this text. If you look at verse three, John begins by saying, by this we know. Just wanna stop there for a moment. This is going to become a very popular phrase that John will use throughout the rest of this letter. Uh, He'll use it seven more times. And it's somewhat of a device that he uses to kind of cue us in for another test of assurance. And so whenever you see this phrase, kind of lean in because he's about to give us another signpost for knowing that we are saved. And he says, by this, we know that we have come to know him. Okay, again, another popular uh, phrase or terminology of the, the author, John, this idea of knowing God is all throughout his writings, especially in the gospel of John that he'll use this phrase, knowing God, somewhat uh, interchangeably with even eternal life or having fellowship with God or being in God. If you even see that in the Gospel of John, John chapter 17, verse three, 
He says, and this is eternal life, that you may know the one true living God in Jesus Christ whom he has sent. But this idea of knowing God is not just an intellectual knowledge of God. It's not some type of mystical awareness of him, but the way he uses this phrase, it's almost like covenant language. It's a, a type of knowledge that's, that's experiential. It's a kind of knowledge that changes you from the inside out. And so when you see this phrase, knowing God or knowledge of God, it's not just facts about him. It's not just awareness of him, but it's a type of knowledge that leads to true life change. It's the kind of knowledge that, for example, if a soldier comes back from combat and he says to the civilians who stayed at home, he says, you don't know what war is like. What he means by that is that there is a knowledge that only comes from experience. It's taking a reality into yourself and tasting it fully. I would say it's even the the difference between uh, Peter and Judas. You had two disciples there who both walked with Jesus for three years, both had facts about Jesus, both probably claimed to know Jesus, and yet Peter denies Jesus three times and yet repents, becomes a leader in the early church, but Judas betrayed Jesus, and that led even to him committing suicide. And they both had knowledge of God, but I would say Peter had a type of knowing Jesus that John is getting at here. It's a knowing Jesus that leads to a type of obedience. I think that's the point of verse three here, that you can tell the difference between if you just know God in kind of a factual way, or if you know God in an experiential saving way by looking at your obedience. He says, you know that you know him by keeping his commandments. Now, what type of commands is he talking about here? Is he referring to the 10 commandments? Is he referring to the 600 plus commands in the Mosaic law? Is he talking about Jesus's commands kind of in the, in the new covenant? I think what John has in mind here is what Jesus claimed in Matthew chapter 22, verse 40, that he summed up the whole law and all of the prophets in two commands, love God and love others. We see this again reiterated in chapter three of this letter in verse 23. John says, and this is his commandment, that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another just as he has commanded us. And so he kind of summarizes this idea of commandments by love for God and love for others. So again, verse three is about if you know God experientially, just look at your obedience. That is where the proof that your faith is real versus a faith that is counterfeit. And moving on to verse four, he basically states the same idea, verse three, just in the converse, that if verse three is about those who obey God's commands, know that they know God, then verse four is stating the opposite, that if you disobey God's commands, that is proof that you do not know God. Now, if you read verse four, you should feel a level of weight to this verse. Verse four is describing a person who is walking in darkness. We saw this idea last week. This is someone who claims to have facts about God, and yet his conduct is contradicting that claim. This is the person who is habitually walking in sin and indeed is enslaved to sin. Look, this is a a heavy and yet important truth. This is an important contrast that John 
is giving for us. So I just wanna pause here, maybe use this principle and apply it to those, first, to those first three groups of people that I mentioned in the beginning. That number one, you should feel a level of comfort from these first two verses if you are someone who is here today and you are pursuing obedience actively in your life. Like if you're looking for new and deeper ways to obey the Lord, if you are fighting off temptation, if you are pursuing the Lord with all that you are, be encouraged today. Keep going. Feel this level of, of affirmation and assurance that you are walking in the light. See, God asks us to connect what we believe with how we are living. So be encouraged today. But secondly, you should be cautioned if there is a particular kind of thought pattern or temptation that has emerged in your life. You should feel a level of caution in your life if you are losing more battles with sin than you are winning. This should cause you to maybe take a step back and maybe ask yourself some questions and carefully consider how it is that you are living. That maybe you need to be reminded today that with every temptation that comes your way, that's another opportunity to demonstrate that your faith is real. So maybe allow this warning to increase a a sensitivity to sin, increase your desire to fight sin and to have this caution move you towards a level of repentance this morning. But thirdly, you should feel convicted today. If there is an ongoing pattern of sin in your life that has become normal and defining. Let me press in a little bit more here. You you should feel a, a level, a deep level of concern, almost a level of fear. If you are seeing a contradiction between what you say you believe and how it is that you are living, that that gap between what you say you believe and how you are living, I'm hoping and I'm praying, moves you towards repentance today. Like this morning, if you, can, if you can hear even what I'm saying, if you can feel conviction this morning and even in this moment, like that's a really good sign. Like that's a great sign that the Lord is still working in your life. But, but let me caution you, that may not last forever. Like you may hear me, but there may come a day in which you don't really hear me or hear what the word of God has to say because there's a callousness that might start to form your life if verse four is true for you. And so John's point here is that disobedience is a problem. That disobedience is something that that we should not mess around with. And so John here doesn't just talk about things in our life that, that is only in the negative, but Thankfully, he provides things that are in the positive in verses five and six. John will connect for us what our belief is and what our actions should actually be. In verse five here, he says that whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. This is a really important verse for us in understanding what obedience is actually all about. Verse five, John shows us kind of the, the engine to our obedience here. And John, just, uh, just a, a, an observation here, John will use phrases like keep his word, obey his commands, walk in the same way as Jesus walked throughout this passage. They all basically refer to the same thing. They basically all refer to having an obedience to Christ. But again, John connects a love of God or love for God with our obedience that should change the way that we live. 
you've probably seen this on TV. There's a, a new sh- a TV show on CBS called Living uh, Biblically. And this show is uh, loosely connected to A.J. Jacobs' book, The Year of Living Biblically. And the show is, is humorous, it's funny. It, it follows the, this main character named Chip, who's a New York film critic. And, and Chip walked into a bookstore, found a Bible, and he decides, man, I'm gonna uh, understand the Bible more and I'm gonna try to live in obedience to what the Bible actually has to say. Now, understanding this show, like even from a pastor's point of view, I'm always wondering like what kind of, what kind of picture of Christianity is being painted for our culture, right? Like what, what are people who are watching this understanding about what it means to be a Christian, even, even those of us in this room? And, and even though the, the show is funny and and it actually hits on some good things. It talks about uh, obedience and loving others. It even talks about like repentance being, um, being a, a big priority as a Christian. The, the show, one of my concerns for the show is that one of the messages, almost front and center, is just become a better version of yourself. Like just use the Bible to do kind of some self-improvements. It's almost like this Oprah-fied version of, of Christianity. Like one of my concerns is like it, it's all about obedience, but it's devoid of gospel power, gospel transformation, the, the Holy Spirit living inside of us, and it divorces God's love from uh, obedience. So just kind of like learning more about this show, wondering like, is that the type of obedience that John has in mind in our text? Is that what he's getting at? A type of obedience that's kind of like on your own strength, that's devoid from the gospel, devoid from God's love. See, this is why I think verse five is so helpful for us this morning. See, John says that when we keep his word or when we obey his commands, the love of God is perfected. That what John means here is God's love is perfected because our obedience is proof that God's love is in us, and as we obey, his love is accomplishing and completing its intended outcome. See, God's love was never meant just to come upon us through the gospel and not change us, but God's love in the gospel is meant to come upon us and change us, empower us, motivate us to do what God has to say, thus completing it and perfecting it. But the question I want us to consider this morning is how does the love of God actually impact our obedience? How is God's love like an engine to help us pursue what God has to say in our lives? Well, I think just in summary that you and I do uh, whatever captures our hearts. Like whatever we love most, that's how we shape our entire lives around. I think Keller articulates this much better than what I could. He says this about about what captures our hearts. He says, what the heart most wants, the mind finds reasonable and the emotions find valuable and the will finds doable. That what makes people into what they are is the order of their loves, what they love most, more, less, and least. That that is more fundamental to who you are than even the beliefs to which you mentally subscribe that your loves show what you actually believe in, not what you say you do. And he says this, he says, change happens not just by giving the mind new arguments, but also by feeding the imagination new beauties. 
See, that's the connection that I think John is making for us in verse five, that when our hearts are being captured by God's love, that will then allow us to pursue obedience, which completes the aim of God's love for us. See, God's love is the beauty that captures our imaginations. God's love is what our hearts and what our souls most want. And so we shape our entire lives around that. Look, this is also why we need to understand that our obedience must flow from the gospel and not as a way to earn the gospel. Again, Keller puts it very succinctly. He says that religion is believing this, that I obey, therefore I'm accepted before God. That's what religion, that's what moralism says. But the gospel, according to Keller, says this, that I'm already accepted before God because of Jesus, therefore I will obey. See, his point is that our passage here flows out of the reality of verses one and two of chapter two. That last week, we looked at all that Jesus accomplished for us on the cross, that Jesus paid the penalty for our sin. He died in the place of sinners. He absorbed the wrath of God, satisfied the wrath of God, and he broke the power of sin and darkness in our lives so that by God's grace, we may actually obey. So John like builds on top of that argument and in our passage says, actually, your obedience shows that you've actually received the gospel and that his love has come upon you and is working in completion in and through your lives. So the call here is, look, the more that you are preaching the gospel to yourselves, the more that you're allowing your soul just to be soaked with the, with the love of God, the more fuel that that will have for your obedience. So when God's love is in you, understand, like it's trying to move you towards obedience, primarily towards loving those around you. Well, not only that, but John finishes verse five and then goes into verse six with another challenge to live in obedience. John says it kind of in a different way here. He says, by this, we may know that we are in him says that anyone who abides in God must walk. This word, last week we looked at peripateo, this word that means uh, your normal uh, behavior, a type of habitual living. He says, for those who, uh, uh, anyone who abides in God must walk as Jesus walked. Okay, so this idea of walk is not uh, typically how you and I use this word. Usually, I know when, when I use this word, I'm like, hey, how's your walk with the Lord going? I'm usually only referring to like your devotions or your private time with the Lord. You know, we respond, yeah, my walk's going well. Like I'm, I'm reading the gospel of Matthew right now. My prayer life is okay. John's not using it in that way. John is using the word walk to refer to your habitual behavior, kind of the, the way to characterize your life. And he says that your obedience of walking as Jesus walked must be continuous, Okay, so do you see the theme of obedience in our passage? That if you are obeying God, that is a sign that you truly know that you are in him. Look, one of my concerns this morning as I was just praying and, and thinking through this passage, like one thing that I, I don't want to happen this morning is that we walk out of this room thinking, okay, I need assurance that I'm, a, that I'm saved and so I'm just going to obey God. Like that, that may not be helpful for us. That's almost too general. Like you're not gonna be most helped this morning by having a general push towards obedience. Okay, so let me get a little bit more specific this morning as it relates to obedience 
and provide four descriptions of obedience that should be true in your life. So how do you know that you're obeying God? How do you know that you're walking as Jesus walked? Here are four descriptions. Number one, understand this about obedience, that motives matter, that motives matter. Look, if you find yourself obeying God and pursuing the commands of God just to make yourself feel better, or maybe you're doing it to impress others, that's the wrong motive to have that we obey God in order to glorify God so that others can see our good deeds and glorify our Father who is in heaven. Also, if you find yourself maybe kind of obeying God in order to earn his favor or to earn his love, that's also a false motive, that we are to obey God because the gospel is true, because we already have his love in Jesus. So understand that your motives matter as it relates to obedience. Secondly, Understand that in your obedience, you should be experiencing more delight than duty. More delight than duty. That yes, you will go through some seasons in your life where it feels like, man, I I have to obey, I need to obey. It feels more like an obligation. You'll, You'll go through some seasons like that. But when you are rehearsing the gospel over your soul, when you are reminding all that Jesus has done for you, that you were far off from him, but he has brought you near by the blood of Jesus, like that should in your heart produce a level of thankfulness and joy in you that propels you towards obedience. You should be experiencing more joy with obedience. Number three, in your obedience, you should also be experiencing consistent growth, consistent growth. I know last week we talked about how the the closer you get to the holiness of God, the the light of God, the dirtier that you're going to feel. Even though you might be holier, you're gonna see your sin more and more. Well, this is the, the important role that community has in your life or a friend or a spouse that we need to be able to, to speak life into one another and identify obvious fruits that God is at work that there should be consistent growth where you should be producing more fruit now than you did 10 years ago. You should be producing more fruit now than you did last year. There should be an upward trajectory of you growing and becoming more and more godly in your life. And then the last one here, maybe most importantly, understand that obedience is a vehicle to enjoying God. It's a vehicle to enjoying God, that Obedience was never meant to be just the destination or the end goal, but obedience is a means by which we experience God, by which we fill our hearts with the pleasure of God. That you shouldn't view obedience as if God is like this taskmaster or our commander and we're his soldiers just coldly carrying out whatever he says. But view obedience almost like God is is our loving father, and he's got these young children that he's helping to obey, and he's holding our hands, and we're experiencing this type of communion with our father as we enjoy him and pursue obedience. Look, does that, does that describe your obedience this morning? Are, are there areas of your obedience that perhaps you need to grow in today? Look, I know in my own life, like one of the most common barriers in in my life in obedience is the on and off switch. Man, I really struggle with this. Like as a pastor, like, man, like when I'm at church, like I'm on, like I'm obeying, you know, but when I get home, I've got this temptation to kind of turn it off, 
relax and start living for me. Like, can you relate to that? Like, where you turn it on when you're with your Christian friends and maybe turn it off when you're with uh, maybe your friends at work or when you're out on the weekend? Maybe you turn it on when, when you're serving, but then you turn it off when you're by yourself. Kind of this turn it on, off, on, off, on, off. Like that tendency has a way of normalizing inconsistency in our obedience. It has a way of kind of saying like, yeah, it's okay to have your obedience to God kind of ebb and flow. But this push that John has for us as it relates to obedience should be this continuous, ongoing activity in the life of a believer. John's point here is that our obedience matters, that obedience shows what we actually believe in, that it reveals our our spiritual posture. It shows if our faith is real and if our faith actually works. So that's the first section here, the verses three through six. But secondly, not only do I want us to see that your faith should work, but number two, should also see an obedience that loves, an obedience that loves in verses seven, eight, and 10. So John, in these verses here, he starts to move from just a general call of obedience to verses seven, 11, this specific call to actually love those around you. And at first glance, when you read or heard verses seven and eight, you probably were confused a little bit. Like John kind of goes back and forth. He says in verse seven, hey, this is not a new commandment. This is an old commandment. And then in verse eight, he says, no, 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 this is actually a new commandment at the same time. It's like, John, just make up your mind. Like, you're a little bit confused. This is kind of how I am when I'm hungry at night. And I'm like, man, do I want Taco Bell or do I want Dairy Queen? Well, I'll just do both, just to kind of settle that. Uh, that's kind of <clears throat> what John does here. He's like, is this an old commandment or is this a new commandment? Well, it's kind of both. It's an old commandment because the command to love others is something that these believers first heard when they first came to faith in Jesus years before this was written. So it was in the past, it was old. But it's also new because that's the way that Jesus described it when he first commanded it in John chapter 13, verse 34. Jesus said, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. And so it's, it's both, it's both old and new. Now, we'll talk in a few weeks in chapter four, we'll take a deep dive on this topic of loving others and how it's a, another signpost for assurance. But just looking at verse 10 here, John's point here is that the proper behavior of people who live in the light of Christ is to love fellow believers. In fact, this is probably the clearest demonstration that you are obeying God by looking at your love for others. And so a sign that you're truly a Christian is not just the absence of sin or habitual sin in your life, but it's also the presence of obedience and love for others. And we'll take a deep dive in a few weeks on that. Okay? Now, the last section, section number three, comes in verses nine and 11. This is a disobedience that blinds, a disobedience that blinds. Now, John has already established the fact that those who love others are walking in obedience, so they're walking in the light. They can have assurance of their salvation. But now John talks about those who not just 
are struggling with loving others, but actually have a hatred for those around them, John is saying they are walking in the darkness, that their, their spiritual eyes have actually become blind because of the hatred that's in their hearts. Look, this word hate, this word is used for the way that enemies are normally treated. Matthew chapter five, verse 43. This word is used for how persecutors respond to the church in Luke chapter six, verse 22. This word is really the overall behavior of the world. John chapter three, verse 20, that having a a hatred for others, it's expressed in this emotional posture towards others where you don't want them to receive grace. That hatred is the opposite of bearing all things and believing all things and enduring all things. That hatred is the opposite of being patient and kind. That hatred often uh, shows itself in being rude to each other and being irritable or being resentful. That hatred rejoices when someone else is in pain or when someone gets hurt. Look, the point that John is making here is that having hatred in your heart not only strips you of assurance, but having that hatred actually forms a blindness and a callousness around your heart so that you can no longer see the truth of God guiding you in this life. And look, that that reality should cause some of us to have great caution in the way that we are living. Look, the reality of this type of blindness that is created because of the hatred that's in our lives, it leads us to not knowing where to go spiritually, that we jump from temptation to temptation to temptation. We can't find the way of of being satisfied in Christ. It blinds us. And scary enough, this blindness kind of forms this hardness around our hearts so that we no longer feel the conviction of God. It, It thrusts us farther and farther into sin And it kind of muddies the water if you truly are a Christian or not. Look, the reality of this, having hatred in your heart should cause great pause for those of us who have it in our hearts. You need to feel the weight of conviction today. That truth be told, there's some here today where you have hatred in your heart and yet you still claim to be a Christian. This hatred could, could come up in animosity towards others maybe an animosity towards a a brother or sister that you've had for years. Maybe this hatred shows itself with a particular kind of bias towards a certain kind of ethnic group. Maybe this type of hatred shows itself in, in nursing a hurt that leads you to becoming defensive towards those in authority or an employer or other people in your family. And look, I just want you to hear me this morning. You cannot love Jesus and love your hates. You will have to choose. John's point here is that our obedience matters. And one of the most evident ways that your obedience shows itself true is in the way that you interact with others. As we close this morning up, I just wanna ask some pastoral questions today, just in light of of this text. Almost wanna do a, kind of an inventory on our obedience today, maybe an inventory on your love, maybe uh, hatred that might be in your life. And I just wanna take the next couple of minutes and just kind of slowly walk through these questions and just ask you to, to be open to the Holy Spirit right now, to maybe allow him to either bring a level of comfort 
maybe a level of caution or maybe a deep sense of conviction. Okay, here's question number one. Do you obey God in order to earn his love? Now, don't, don't immediately write this off. If you've been at church for any length of time, you, you obviously know, yeah, yeah, I'm not supposed to earn God's love. And yet, just sit on this for a moment. Like, is there any part of your motivation for obedience where you think to yourself, man, if I do this, God's going to bless me. If I do this, then God's gonna do X for me. God's love's going to be increased for me. Maybe on the flip side, if you disobeyed, you feel like you're gonna lose God's love. You live your relationship with God in a level of fear where, man, if I disobey, I, I lose his love. And, and that fear is a terrible, terrible motive for obeying God. Secondly, is your obedience to God inconsistent? Inconsistent. Not do you have bad days every once in a while or once in a blue moon, but is inconsistency a way to describe your obedience to God? If so, I just want to caution you. What you do matters, and what you don't do also matters. Question number three is, do you only obey when others are watching? This is another hard one to wrestle with. Like, do you find yourself struggling to obey the commands that are less glamorous, that kind of fly under the radar, the type of commands where no one notices, no one affirms you? Maybe the things that you do in secret or other commands in the scripture like mourning for sin, having a purity of heart, having a poverty of spirit, having humility, extending mercy to others. Do you like the spotlight and find yourself only obeying when it's there? If so, understand that motives matter. And then the last one here, number four, is do you struggle to love others and in fact have hatred in your heart for others? Look, does, do verses nine and 11 describe you? Does verse four describe you today? If so, can I just encourage you to, to receive the word today? to put on kindness, to put on tenderheartedness, to put on a spirit of forgiveness. Look, as I close this morning, look, no matter where you find yourself, no matter if you have felt encouraged and comforted, maybe you felt caution or maybe you felt a level of conviction today, I just want to encourage you, we all need the same thing today. Like we all need to look up at Jesus, the author and the perfecter of our faith. We need to look to him because if we keep looking inward, like we are going to produce that which is in our own hearts. And so if you're here today and you're, and you're feeling a level of, of conviction, maybe you're thinking to yourself, man, I've got some things to work on. Like, can I just praise the Lord alongside you there? Like that is a great sign that God is moving in you, bringing conviction in your life. That struggle against sin is a great sign of victory. That victory is coming and that victory has already begun but our assurance that your faith is real, that what you claim to believe is genuine, just look at your works, look at your obedience. Cry out to Jesus, thank him for the cross, thank him for the gospel, but also cry out to him and say, Jesus, help me be more like you. Let's pray together. God, we thank you for the blood of Jesus that not only cleanses us from all unrighteousness, but the blood of Jesus also creates a new people 
God, that by the blood we have the church, we have your people. And God, you ask us to be set apart and different from the world. You ask us to be the salt and the light. And God, I pray for those of us who are here today who are walking with you in obedience, who are actively fighting against sin, who are putting to death temptation after temptation. God, thank you for the grace that's in their lives. God, thank you for moving within them and allowing them to have a level of comfort today. But Lord, I pray for those who are here today and they have felt conviction. Lord, they have felt maybe challenged by your word. Lord, I pray that you would give them quick repentance this morning. God, that they would look at the ways that they are living and Lord, that you would allow them to have the eyes to see the ways that they are living that's contradicting what they're claiming to believe. God, we we want to be different and we want the gospel to be the engine to our obedience. So Lord, fill us with your love. Fill us with the power of God to move us towards obedience, we pray in Jesus' name, 